The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Horror Hill Season 4, Episode 18, Ignis Fatuous. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 18. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and CGI is not scary, Hollywood. Please, stop putting it in horror movies. It looks dumb and fake. Yes, it's come along quite a bit. Still looks pretty fake, just not scary. Quit it, please. Anywho, tonight's story comes from treasured friend of the show, Luciano Morano, leaving his literary trail of breadcrumbs for us to follow all the way to the next installment of his ongoing and wildly popular storybook gothic series. One problem, though. Those breadcrumbs? Not the literary ones, the ones that you use to mark your way here. Yeah, those ones. Well... The crows in the intro? You heard them, right? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Oh, well, how awful. I guess you'll be staying a while. May as well make ourselves comfortable. Shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Thank you for your support. Now, allow me to escort you to a place where the dead speak and the night has a voice. Welcome, listener, 
to the Horror Hill. You haven't found the darkness. The darkness has always been there. And now, without further ado, from author Luciano Morano, I give you part four of the storybook gothic series, Beast Love Blues. Nobody leaves this place without singing the blues. Albert Collins, Adventures in Babysitting, 1987 Standing from where he'd crouched to more closely examine the latest butchered gangster, knees popping loudly with the effort, Detective Papa Grzlowski sighed contentedly. I just love the smell of justice in the evening. A man's dead, Gris. Not a nice man, admittedly. Not the kind of man you'd want to hang out with or anything, but could you gloat a little less? At least until we finish scraping him off the pavement? Detective Kit Laughlin was a tall, athletic brunette. She stood nearby, shoulders hunched, and the collar of her coat turned up as the blast of mean, icy wind cut through the alley. The glow of dingy streetlights barely reached where they stood so far back at the shadows, but the weak yellow tint that did persevere made the whites of her narrowed eyes look sickly as she cast them toward the faraway sound of sirens growing slowly louder. Took him long enough. And that is exactly my point. Grizz unthinkingly patted the breast pocket of his tan trench coat, looking for a cigar. The pack of gum he found caused the giant brown bear's grin to falter. Old habits die hard. Even harder than the mutilated criminal at his feet, apparently. He didn't bother to unwrap a piece. Nobody's straining themselves for an upstanding citizen like this. He nodded at the corpse. I know him. Believe me, this guy was due for a bad end years ago. That's not justice. Kit's boots clacked on the filthy concrete as she strode toward the mouth of the alley. Her long curly hair was blown back along with her coat by another sudden blast of freezing wind. It also carried back her words, spoken softly, but with deafening portent. And this guy makes three. Grizz growled, his previous indifference feeling suddenly fake. She was right, of course. Kit usually was. And she wasn't as good as Pixie about not rubbing it in, either. Grumbling, the bear stalked after his new, supposedly temporary partner, leaving the remains of Garrett Gravedigger Graves alone in the cold darkness. Three very bad guys got themselves very dead in two weeks, Kit said as they stood together on the sidewalk, flashing lights visible in the distance. All of them genuine hard cases. All of them torn apart. All of them with known ties to the Tusk Syndicate. Grizz said, Well, it's not exactly a job that lends itself to reaching retirement age. Well, this is different and you know it. Kit's breath came out in white fog. This isn't the usual gangland stuff, Grizz. None of those boys are this... Well, this enthusiastic. Grizz felt his fur bristle as another wave of freezing wind assaulted them, and the ambulance pulled to a stop at the curb, siren cutting off mid-shriek. 
The paramedics went about slowly confirming what was obvious to everyone. It would have been impossible for Graves to be anything other than deceased, cut up as he was, and with that much of his neck torn out. The coroner was at last dutifully called. Nobody rushed. This crime scene was casual, completely devoid of the usual stoic solemnity such carnage typically demands. Graves was a known quantity to this crowd. It was no secret that he had it coming. If anyone could have something like this coming, Grizz allowed. As the covered stretcher was wheeled past him and the mishappen lump beneath the stained sheet could have been anything, anything except a man, Grizz thought only one creature alive deserved an end that nasty. She was a skinny young blonde with eerily ancient emerald eyes and a beauty queen smile. He pushed the picture of Goldie aside and shivered, though not from the cold this time. Yes, the weary detective thought. Kit was right, yet again. There was definitely something strange going on. Someone, or something, was murdering the city's most dangerous gangster's favorite soldiers in a particularly nasty way. But why? And more important, who could be crazy enough to cross Tyson Tusk? The stretcher clattered as the paramedic shoved it inside the ambulance, jostling its grisly burden. No question, Gris thought. Graves had been bad. But whatever had done that to him was worse. Elsewhere in the frigid nighttime city, Detective Pixie Emberlight was contemplating a sight nearly as unpleasant as the mangled remains of Garrett Graves. The diminutive detective sat in smoky gloom, elbows on the edge of the bar, huddling over a drink and ignoring the noisy pair of orcs at the corner table. In the time it had taken her to down two neat scotches, the pair had slurped down four pitchers of beer and gone from obvious leering and lewd gestures to outright harassment. The bartender, a pudgy old man with a droopy gray mustache, shuffled over and refilled her glass. On the house, he said quietly. You know, you might want to make it your last one, honey. Them two, they're not likely to lose interest. You understand? Eyes fixed on the street mirror behind the bar, Pixie said, Your advice is noted. The few other denizens of the sketchy establishment sat aloof in their respective patches of shadow, smoking and drinking with little regard for much else. In the corner, the jukebox played on, sounds escaping weakly from beneath a thick coating of dust and grime. Hey, fairy, called an orc. Are you going to come talk to us or just sit there pretending not to hear me? She's getting in the mood, said the other. Party girl, that one. Sucking down booze like it's going bad. A large fist slammed their table and glasses rattled. I'll give her something to suck. The pair burst into loud, obnoxious laughter. Pixie gazed into her drink. This is not what I need, she thought. Not tonight. Then, a smaller voice from somewhere near the back of her mind said, Are you sure? It was exactly what you needed last time. A minute ticked by with surreal slowness, then another. 
Mired in a stalemate with the brass, she was unwilling to see a department shrink in the wake of her ordeal at the hands of the Grimm sisters, and they were unwilling to reinstate her until she did. As such, Pixie had been left with plenty of time on her hands of late. Tonight, unable to sit around by herself at home and eschewing her usual hangout at the wishing well, dreading the too earnest, How you doing? and How you been? inquiries from every cop in the place, she'd wandered further afield, looking to waste some of her abundant time at a particularly dank dive bar she knew. It was near the old railroad tracks, the kind of place where nobody would recognize her, the kind of place where someone so inclined might find a little trouble. Pixie sipped her whiskey, feeling more so inclined all the time. Her gun and badge were in a locked drawer of the chief's desk back at headquarters, but she was not wholly unarmed. She shrugged inside her bulky biker jacket, extra roomy now, especially around her shoulders. Keys clinked lightly against the handle of the switchblade in her front right pocket as insistent muscles on her back flexed impotently, reflexively trying to move wings that were no longer there. When she'd still been going to see her physical therapy appointments, the doctors had assured her the habit would die off in time. Phantom appendage syndrome, they called it. The fairy felt the pull of bandages, the stiffness of budding scars, and tasted the coppery tang of blood. Her pulse quickened as Pixie downed her drink and focused on breathing slowly. Violent thoughts careened through her mind's eye like a drunken ballerina. Coming here tonight was a bad idea, Pixie thought. You might just find exactly what you're looking for, old girl. She turned to leave and came face to face with the looming figure of the louder of the two orcs. He was standing behind her, his teeth long, sharp, and yellow within his mangy black beard. That he'd gotten so close at all was a testament to Pixie's distracted mindset. The foul reek of sweat, beer, and rotten meat hovered above him in a fetid cloud and should easily have announced his presence. He leaned forward, a giant hand resting on the bar on either side of her, face too close to hers, as he whispered, I'm gonna split you like cheap wood, little fairy, and you're gonna love it. Pixie said, I'm leaving, all right? Let's not do this. But again, the tiny back-of-the-mind voice piped up. Why not? I don't want any trouble, Pixie said, but whether it was to herself or the orc she was speaking to, she did not know. Oh, it's no trouble, baby. Pretty thing like you comes into a place like this. She must be looking for something. Right? Pixie could not help but smile. I guess I am. The orc leaned in closer and rumbled in her ear. Why don't we take this outside? The smell of him made Pixie's eyes water. She leapt down from the stool darted between his massive legs, each thick as old-growth tree trunks, and struck him in the right knee with a roundhouse kick. The orc's leg gave way and he dropped, smacking his chin on the bar as he fell, cleaving a chunk out of the wood and driving teeth into his lip 
with a sudden spurt of black blood. His friend's eyes went wide with drunken confusion as Pixie drove a solid right cross into his fallen buddy's kidney, then danced nimbly backward toward the door. My thoughts exactly, she said. It was fast, brutal, and messy, but not in the ways the orcs had hoped. And in the end, she simply walked away and left them there, bleeding, groaning, right where they lay, spread eagled in the gravel lot outside the bar. What a crock, Pixie thought. I didn't even need the knife. It was the same story as her last impromptu midnight outing two days ago, and the first one, about a week before that. Different bars, different opponents, but each time the same ending. She had, so far, always managed to drag herself back from doing any serious harm to the foes she found, but Pixie could not deny how good it felt to fight. She imagined how good it would feel to do worse. Like flying, she thought. It would feel like flying. But in the silent, sweaty wake of each brawl, she'd had to admit she did not really feel any better. Not for long, and she was still no closer to the sky. That's it, Pixie told herself, stalking away. No more of this. What will it take? You want to end up laid out for good? Are you looking to get killed, is that it? The tiny voice inside said nothing now, and the maddening silence was worse than the echoes of her own screams. Worse than the dreams that made the idea of sleep utterly revolting. The light glinting on metallic tools. The taste of blood. The demonic giggling in the shadows. The squeak of fingertips flexing in tight, shiny gloves. She walked quickly away, a small lonely figure disappearing in the vast blackness of night. Back in the lot, a man emerged from the shadows and moved to stand over the orcs. He was handsome in a lean and scruffy way, with dark slicked-back hair and elvis sideburns, wearing sharp-toed boots and a red leather jacket. He tongued a match from one corner of his smirking mouth to the other, kneeling to examine the carnage. Hey, buddy. Who did this to you? What do you look like? One of the orcs shouted through loose teeth and a split lip. Fucking fairy! A fucking little blonde fairy bitch! Black jacket! I think she just left. Officer Nick Jersey's amber eyes glittered as his arm shot out. He grabbed a fistful of the orc's beard and pulled hard. Try again, he said. What did the guy look like? I just told you. No, Jersey pulled harder. You're confused. The orc's head was raised further from the ground and cried out in pain. Now tell me, Jersey said, and think real hard. Who did this to you? The orc moaned, understanding at last. It was a big guy, he managed. Out of my walk he did. Lots of tattoos. He jumped us, wanted money. 
Jersey let the orc's head fall back onto the gravel where it struck with a painful thud. I thought so. He stood, taking from his jeans pocket a wad of bills. He peeled off a few and dropped them onto the orc's heaving chest. Be sure to remember that if anybody asks. What the hell do you care? The orc whined. It ain't right what she did. Well, I agree. Jersey pulled from inside his jacket a black billfold, flipped it open to reveal his badge. You should call a cop. The spoon clinked gently as she dragged it around her coffee cup until finally Hazel Greer let it go, and with her dark eyes narrowed behind the rising steam said, Go ahead and ask, detective. I know you want to. Grizz leaned back in his chair, crossing arms over his chest. All right. What happened to your hand? Hazel's gaze shifted for a moment to her thickly bandaged right hand, a bulging cotton mitten from which only thumb and forefinger stuck out. As if seeing it for the first time, she shrugged. I hurt myself. Hazel reached for the coffee with her undamaged hand and turned her attention back to Grizz. I thought you'd asked where I was last night. That is why you're here, right? The interrogation room was silent until Kit moved from the corner, noisily dragging the chair beside Grizz to the head of the small table. She turned it around and straddled the seat, arms folded on the back, looking intently at the other woman, but saying nothing. You're here, Grizz said, so that I can update you on your case. Unless, that is, you have something to tell me about what happened last night. Oh, how should I know? Hazel gestured to the wheelchair in which she sat. It's not like I'm out and about much these days. I will say, I'm not exactly upset about what happened to that monster. Seems like it worked out fairly enough to me. The people of this city would have grown old and died waiting on the cops to do anything about Graves or his boss. Or any of them, for that matter. She sipped her coffee tired face surrounded by short dark hair with red streaks, ears full of silver piercings. The tendrils of elaborate tattoos snaked onto her neck and chest from beneath her black sweatshirt. Tattoos, which Grizz knew from photos taken at the hospital a year ago, covered her strong, well-muscled arms as well. Her fiancé had been equally decorated. So go ahead and update me, detective. Shouldn't take long. Never does. Gris said, What do you call it when exactly one year after you and your fiancé get shot in the street by unknown assailants? Perfectly known assailants, Hazel said. Officially unidentified assailants, Gris went on. You didn't actually see them, and nobody else would testify. Gee, I wonder why. I'm sure being terrified of Tusk knowing their names had nothing to do with it. But everybody knows who shot us. Regardless, what do you call it when exactly one year after you and your fiancé get shot in the street by unidentified assailants, three of the men suspected of being responsible are methodically and brutally murdered? Hazel pushed her cup away. I call it fine by me. Riz leaned forward and slapped the mug off the table. It shattered against the wall, 
splashing coffee onto the large pane of one-way glass. He said softly, I call it too big a coincidence to ignore. Hazel held out her hands. Arrest me then, if you really think I wheeled myself out there and put down three armed gangsters, murdered them without getting so much as a scratch. Go ahead. What about your hand? Kit spoke for the first time since entering the room. Hazel laughed. I was trying to cut vegetables to make soup and gashed my hand. See, I'm not as tall as I used to be, but the counters in my place are unwilling to lower themselves to accommodate the change, and that's just one of the many unexpected pleasures of my life since those bastards gunned me and Leroy down while playing badass in the street. Kit said, If you know something, Hazel, or if maybe you did something, even if you think it's too late to stop it now, you better tell us. Reasons won't matter later. Hazel wheeled herself back from the table. Reasons never mattered at all. All I know is there is just one of them left now. One of the scumbags responsible for what happened to us is still out walking around. I think not for long, though. They put Leroy in the ground and me in this chair, and for what? For money. As part of some bullshit turf war. All we ever wanted was to make music. We had every right to be playing on that street corner. Now, someone is doing what you people never could. And to whoever it is that's killing them, I am thankful. Doesn't have to be this way, Riz said. I wish you were right, Hazel said. And I also wish you had been as concerned about avenging us as you are with protecting them. Maybe then we wouldn't be here right now. Justice and revenge are not the same thing, Kit said. And we are here now. Hazel looked at her bandaged hand, eyes brimming with unshed tears. Yeah, we are here, aren't we? And now we have to live with it. All of us. Toby Frick was cowering in what had to be the last phone booth left standing in all creation. The light bulb in the ceiling was dead, but the phone, thank the gods, worked well enough. Bless criminals, he thought giddily, shaking fingers forcing coins into the slot. It had been criminals who'd kept payphones around this long, being the kind of people who prized deniability and anonymity being the kind of people who couldn't risk Big Brother tracking their movements with the pinging of cellular towers as they went about their illicit agendas. In short, his kind of people. Toby was a lifelong crook who'd spent more time in payphone booths than most. He was a short, skinny man with skin like an albino corpse and stringy brown hair that was constantly falling in front of his jittery red-rimmed eyes. He mashed buttons dialing a familiar number and listening to the agonizingly slow ringing on the other end. His eyes searched the street outside. It was a bad part of town, even Toby thought so, which was saying something, and the street lights were black and useless as the bulb over his head. A few scattered windows glowed behind iron bars. The headlights of a speeding car sliced by on the street. 
He could see nothing else in the shapeless dark but a lifetime of looking over both shoulders and anticipating setups that tuned Toby's survival skills perfectly. It was out there, watching him right now, he knew. It was coming. The phone rang. Come on, Toby moaned. Please answer, please! At last, a cool, officious voice on the other end said, Yes? It's me, Slade. It's Toby. I need to talk with the man. Toby? The voice mused. I don't think I know any Toby. Oh, for the love of God, Slade, fine! I'll say the stupid code phrase. Um, let me see here. Goodbye. Toby could hear the ugly smile in the lion's dismissive tone. Wait, he said. I got hot feet and a dead man's hand, Slade said. Aces and eights? Toby dutifully responded, All black. Toby, Slave exclaimed with overdone enthusiasm. What do you think you're doing calling this number? It better be a for real emergency boy. The boss is in a mood. I've got to talk to him. Somewhere in the dark, a loud crash sounded, the ripping noise of a car being crushed in a pileup. Toby started clutching the phone like a drowning man might a low branch as he swept along a raging river. Hmm. No dice. Like I said, the man's in a mood. Guess you heard about graves. That is what I'm saying, Toby shrieked. I've seen it, and it's after me. What are you talking about? Another crash came exploding out of the darkness, followed by an impossible howl. It rattled the walls of the booth. Toby felt something hot and wet at his crotch and looked down to find he'd wet himself. Graves was right, he whispered, eyes wide and unblinking, head turning this way and that as he tried to look everywhere at once. I've seen the dog, Slade growled, fake politeness vanished from his voice. I told Graves I'm telling you, there is no dog. You understand? A moment of quiet, crackling static passed. Toby, are you hearing me, boy? At last, the lion's ears detected the faintest ghost of a voice, flat and resigned, hopeless like a condemned man who just realized the governor isn't going to call. The end is nigh. It's here, Toby said. Then came the noise. Slade winced at what sounded like the roaring of a tornado, the cracking and shattering of metal and glass. And then the line went instantly dead. He looked at the phone with slitted eyes, a fresh growl building in his throat. He knew very well what murder sounded like. In all of its many forms, murder was a subject on which Slade was an expert. Toby was gone, he was certain, and things were somehow even worse than he'd feared. The lion gently hung up the phone, adjusted his tie, and smoothed his suit before slowly running both paws through his dark mane. As the plush office was otherwise empty, he allowed himself a long and weary exhalation, hearing 
and hating the weakness in it. But Toby made four. Four soldiers had been killed without a peep from the usual snitches and informants. Not a word from any of the cops on the boss's payroll either. It shouldn't be possible, Slade thought. Somebody had to know something. Toby was a twitchy loser who never should have been kept around as long as he was, but Graves. He'd been the real deal. A thoroughbred killer. There was no muscle capable of putting him down which Slade did not already know about, which Tusk did not either own, or at least monitor. There is no goddamn dog, Slade told himself again. It's impossible. And yet... His stomach lurched as he recalled the stories, rumors passed among the crooks, cons, and killers of the city. It had started with Vince, their most trusted trigger man, and after he'd been killed, Slade had done his best to quash the stories, but it did no good. The obsession persisted among the crew worse than ever, that a giant black dog, some kind of demon that could walk through walls and lock doors and couldn't be killed, was hunting down everyone who'd been involved in the big shootout last year. Slade rose to tell the boss the latest bad news. He'd been charged with looking into the matter personally after a second murder, and had assured Tusk there was not, that there could not possibly be, some giant black dog hunting their men. He'd given his word. Slade knocked lightly on the enormous door of Tusk's private office from the nightclub below. The rhythmic thump and crash of dance music drifted up through the luxurious thick carpet. Down there, Slade considered people were having fun. They were drinking and dancing, bound for other more private pleasures next. Isn't that strange? They were dancing, and he'd given his word. And now... Another of the crew was dead. Only one responsible party left now, Slade thought. He had been finishing a short bit for parole violation at the time, so with Toby out of the picture, the boss himself was the last one standing. He would not like that one bit. Slade braced himself against the onslaught to come. Tusk had a notorious temper and could not abide failure. It had been quite some time since Slade had earned the ire of the city's criminal kingpin, but, as everyone knows, elephants never forget. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now... All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Pixie lived in a small apartment above a commercial garage that serviced city vehicles. Cop cars, ambulances, garbage trucks. The noise had become something of a comfort to her over the years, mostly because the constant presence of people at work down there meant nobody could sneak up on her without at least being seen. Also, the fellows were cool about keeping her bike tuned up in return for the occasional disappeared speeding ticket, or a case of beer being left in the office. It was a hassle, though, when she had company, especially a man. A bit of ribbing was a guarantee. Like living above a squad of big brothers, she sometimes thought. Not that it often mattered. It was a rarity for Pixie to invite anybody into a private sanctuary. But tonight, the insidious voice in her head was louder than usual. And looking to drown it, she dialed a number she never meant to memorize. After she hung up, Pixie made a reflexive plan to blame the booze and send him away when he arrived. But then, Nick Jersey showed up at the side door as invited and pressed the buzzer, looking at her with a perfectly vacant expression that was neither expectant nor judgmental. And she let him in, waving at the giggling boys in the garage as she led him up the narrow staircase to her apartment. There was no spoken greeting, just an open door and exchange smiles. Then she was on the sofa, glass of whiskey in hand, as he slouched in the doorway, eyes moving over the room as if he might later be asked to describe it in some police report. At last, Pixie laughed and pointed toward the kitchen. Help yourself to something to drink and try to relax, officer. I promise this isn't a setup. Jersey went into the darkened kitchen and returned with a can of beer. He opened it a sound very loud in the quiet room. I thought maybe you'd be out again tonight, he said, enjoying your little mandatory vacation. Some vacation. Where exactly did you think I'd be? Well, there's this little bar I know. Kind of a pit, really, but it seemed like maybe your kind of place. Not too far from the old railroad tracks. You know it? <laughs> no. Really? You see, the bartender there is an old informant of mine. He swears somebody looking like you was in there recently. Two orcs I found laid out in the parking lot remembered you pretty clearly, too. Don't worry, I encourage them to forget. They aren't too keen on anyone knowing they had their asses handed to them by a little blonde fairy anyway. Guess this latest bout makes you three and oh. Time to retire, maybe? What the hell do you want, Jersey? I just wanted to let you know there are easier ways to kill yourself, if that's what you're gonna do. If not, guess I wanted to let you know that you could talk to me about whatever it is that's sending you out there looking for trouble. Thanks, Pixie said. But I didn't call you over to talk. Her eyes found a spot just south of his belt buckle. Now... Are you up for this or not? Jersey seemed to consider the question carefully as he took a long drink of beer. Finally, he swallowed and nodded. Been looking forward to it. Fine. Pixie stood and padded toward the bedroom. Give me five minutes, then come back. And just to be clear, I don't like a lot of talk during any more than I do beforehand. You got that? Jersey nodded. 
Waiting, he reflected on the nature of irony and the accuracy of that old adage about being wary of granted wishes. A midnight come hither from the fairy detective had long been something Jersey hoped for. Now, at last, here it was. But he was troubled. Moral flexibility comes naturally to devils, so much so they are often thought to be utterly without principle. For most, that evaluation is accurate. Certainly many of Jersey's relatives could not be thought of as being exactly scrupulous. He, however, had always taken pains to substitute his innately blunt sense of right and wrong with an exterior code of conduct. This had been for him the major attraction of the law, as a concise and objective rubric against which to measure his own desires and calibrate his actions, as well as what drew him to a career enforcing it despite the scandal it had caused back home. No devil had ever willingly interacted with the police, let alone trained as one, and Jersey thought it was perhaps this shared trait of bucking the rules, their obvious delight in pushing boundaries and ruffling feathers among the establishment, which so attracted him to Pixie, the department's first ever fairy detective. That, and, well, she was fucking hot, Five minutes had elapsed by the wall clock. Jersey heard Pixie stirring in the other room, heard the whispery sound of bare skin against bedsheets. There was no law against what he wanted to do here. And yet... And yet what? Jersey drained his beer and placed the empty can in the kitchen sink. He grinned in the dark. It was a sad and doomed world indeed, he thought which had left only a devil to be the responsible one. When twelve minutes passed, Pixie went tentatively into the living room. She wore only a sleeveless black t-shirt, still very aware of the absence of her wings and the scars on her back. She had not decided if she'd allow the shirt to come off during the night's festivities, and wrestling with that question had caused her to lose track of time. Jersey's flight had been silent. She shifted from one foot to the other in the living room, unsurprised at finding it empty. Her relief, however, was a surprise. She felt a strange mix of anger and gratitude toward Jersey, and a separate stirring of anger at herself for feeling grateful to him for essentially rejecting her. She'd misread his nature, and this nagged at her too. It was yet another uncharacteristic lapse. Could she also be feeling ashamed? It was a complex nod of competing emotions, the untangling of which was, for tonight at least, a task she was unequal to. Pixie returned to bed with the open bottle of whiskey, intent on seeing as little of tomorrow as possible. Enthusiastic fingers massaged, oiled, and smeared lotion across the rough and wrinkled hide of Tyson Tusk. The elephant reclined on an enormous waterbed, puffing a foot-long cigar and wearing polka-dot boxer shorts, sipping dark liquor from a crystal goblet the size of a fishbowl as a pair of bikini-clad beauties attended him. His posture was of complete ease and control, but his eyes were wide and jittery, like embers blazing down in deep, dark holes. The scent of panic was thick in the penthouse apartment above the crime lord's favorite nightclub, 
almost as thick as cigar smoke. Have you been sleeping well, Tyson? Riz's paw strayed reflexively to the breast pocket of his trench coat for a cigar. Again, the pack of gum there fell to entice. He muffled a cough. In the corner of the room, Tusk's lawyer, a thin professional mannequin of a man, with small silver glasses and a large diamond in his tie, quickly rose from his chair. That is irrelevant to the previously agreed-upon subject, detective. My client has graciously agreed to speak with you today regardless of his past mistreatment at the hands of law enforcement out of respect for his deceased colleagues. But, if you insist upon straying from the specified area of... Relax, Peyton. Tusk sipped his drink and winked at Grizz. Lawyers take everything so literally. I'm sure the detective was just making conversation. We go way back, Papa and me. He was my very first arresting officer. And a guy never forgets his first. Am I right? It was a shoplifting beef when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, as they say. Seems we've both come a long way in our respective careers. Isn't that true, Papa? Shoving his restless paws into his coat pockets, Grizz said, I'm very proud of you, Tyson. The elephant's red-rimmed eyes narrowed. And what the hell does that mean? I just thought I'd tell you, in case you've never heard it from anyone before. I really am, you know. Proud of you? You took what little you had and worked with it. You made something of yourself. It's not what I would have chosen for you, and I will definitely haul you away to jail one of these days. But still, I can't deny the achievement. First time I brought you in and you said nothing but your name and birthday over and over again, no matter how we tried to work you. You remember? You never gave up the identity of the fences who bought the goods you stole. I said right away to the other cops, this kid is going places in the world of sleaze. He's a natural. Tusk laughed, expelling huge clouds of purplish smoke. I was a certified pain in the keister, was I not? Riz tamped down a fresh cough. I certainly were. Are you feeling okay, old man? Tusk leaned forward and casually shoved aside one of his attendants, a slinky blonde. You don't look right. Want this one to rub you down? Take you in the back for a little, uh, stress relief? My treat, of course. You'll feel 25 again. I promise. I get all I can handle at home. Grizz looked at Kit. You, uh, want anything? She smirked and directed the scantily clad lady to the sofa against the wall. I'm good. Sit over there, honey, unless somebody needs HPV or a bad example. Let's get going, Grizz. You gotta question this bloated Capone wannabe or should I? Tusk roared with laughter, though it felt forced and overdone, and his smile came nowhere near his eyes. Well, she's not the fairy, but she'll do. How do you manage to score such tasty partners, Papa? You can ask me anything you want, Detective. Why don't you come sit right here on my lap, and we'll bare our souls? Peyton quickly stood. Let the record reflect my client is speaking metaphorically and was in no way inviting Detective Laughlin to conduct a search of his person. Oh, but I was, Tusk purred, swirling his liquor. 
Come over here and frisk me, detective. Uh, um, my client is once again speaking in... Relax, dork, Kit said. I have no intention of fondling your meal ticket. Though I'll probably get stuck with the chore of hefting his carcass into the ambulance after he's torn apart like a porterhouse in a crowded kennel. Grizz has seniority. Grizz nodded. Rank has its privileges. Are you threatening me, little lady? Tusk moved to sit on the edge of his bed. No, I'm not, Kit said. But I think we can all agree that you are being threatened. We just want to hear what you know about it. Nobody threatens Tyson Tusk. The elephant stood and drained his glass. Immediately the blonde came forward with an empty bottle, but he waved her away with his trunk, glaring at the detectives. Enough pleasantries. Let us understand each other right now. I'm the goddamn king of this concrete jungle. I do the threatening around here, you understand? Monsters have nightmares about me. And even if, as you say, somebody was crazy enough to make moves against me, what exactly would my history and character would make you think I'd be inclined to come to the likes of you for help? I can handle myself just fine. And uh, what about Graves, a frick, Gray said. Those were your guys, as everybody in the city knew. And you didn't handle them so good, did you? Tyson crushed out his cigar in a crystal dish on the nightstand. Ours is a dangerous occupation, Papa. Surely you can relate. So that's it then, Kit said. You got nothing for us. Well, I've got plenty for you, little lady. Tusk smiled as he was helped into his silk robe by the bikini girls. But nothing about this. Come see me someday without your dusty chaperone here, and we'll get to know each other. Slade moved from where he'd been leaning near the door and motioned for the detectives to follow him out. The lion was impeccably groomed, as always, wearing an Italian suit with his mane perfectly coiffed. The teeth, displayed by his fake smile, were white and very sharp. You're making a mistake, Tyson, Gris said. Oh, I've got it under control. Wouldn't be surprised if this unfortunate little tale was sorted out real soon. It's got a familiar ring to it, you know? Like a song I heard once. Sung by a pretty girl on the street corner. Kinda sad, though, come to think of it. I ain't seen her round lately. She was real good, too. You like music, Papa? I'm big into the blues myself. The bear's face betrayed him for just a second, but it was enough. Tusk saw what he was looking for and began to laugh for real this time. Gone was the goofball bully, the lecherous but lovable rogue. Here, at last, stood the criminal king himself, a merciless killer who'd fought his way through the ranks of the worst of the city's bad guys to rule over a terrible dynasty of blood and fear. A legitimate terror. How long have you known it was her? Tusk asked. Riz pulled himself together. How could it be the girl? You're not telling me that you're afraid of... Well, what are we even talking about here? Voodoo? 
Tusk's exhaustion bled through his bravado. I've been seeing things I can't explain. My father came to this country with nothing and worked himself into an early grave performing tricks in the circus. He thought for sure he'd be a star someday, the fool. But my mother, she was smarter. She told fortunes and sideshows, sold charms and candles, potions and trinkets to the rubes. But behind the costume and crap, she was the real thing. She was taught by her mother in the old country. And every now and then, somebody would come to her with big money. And she would do her thing. Not some cheap act. I used to watch her work between flaps in the tent when I was supposed to be in bed asleep. Anything is possible in this life, if you're willing to pay enough. The old gods are always hungry, and they're listening, and dark deals get done every day. Oh yes, I've seen it happen. His temper flared as he drug himself back to the present. What were you doing, detective, while my men were being shredded? Or is it not a crime to kill a killer? Tyson, Gris said. Whatever you're planning, please don't. Let us handle it. We just need some proof, something definitive, and... Uh, yes, yes, you, you do what you want. And me? I got all the proof I need. Tusk turned and strode out of the room, girls scampering to follow. Get out, Grislowski. But next time you come, bring a warrant, or lead with a gun, or I'll put you so deep in the ground they'll never find you. Outside, standing near their car in the cold night, Kit looked her partner over. What do we do now, Grizz? The best thing we can do is watch Tusk and see if he moves. We got no reason to bring Hazel in, not even enough to interrogate her again. She doesn't need another interrogation. Chris pulled a phone from his pocket. She needs a sympathetic ear. He punched a button and waited, one paw searching absently, unthinkingly, for a cigar. Come on, he muttered. Jesus, I need a hibernation. At last, the call was answered. Pull yourself together, Grizz growled. You sound terrible. Well, chug some water and swallow an aspirin. Just do something. I got a favor to ask, when it's important. Pixie's hangover was a living thing. A ravenous, great white shark, wearing a top hat and thrashing about in the kiddie pool of her skull. Too large and vicious and ridiculous to even contemplate. She sat on her bike, shivering and nursing a carton of coconut water which the cute convenience store clerk had recommended when she'd blearily purchased a very large coffee and a bottle of aspirin. It wasn't doing shit for her condition, and tasted terrible, but fluid of any sort was probably a good idea, so she sipped, she sat, and she watched Hazel's house. It was a moldering shotgun shack in a troubled part of town, one of the several that lined a particularly shabby street, with peeling paint the color of diseased roses. A small weedy front lawn and sagging porch had barely held up two plastic chairs. Someone had laid a long piece of plywood over the stairs, 
a sort of makeshift access ramp that looked dangerously precarious. A rusty mailbox, open and empty, leaned at a strange angle near the street. The curtains were drawn, but weak light glowed through from somewhere within. An old woman passed by, hunched against the cold, pushing a cart overloaded with cans and rags along the uneven sidewalk. She made angry gestures at Pixie with one hand and spoke in an unrecognizable language. The fairy detective responded with a single raised finger and drained her disgusting beverage. Pixie had not previously spoken much to the young musician she'd come to confront. Historically, they found suspects more willing to cooperate with Grizz than herself. She'd been content to sit back and let him handle most of their interrogations. He was very good at it, and Pixie always preferred to let her actions speak for her when possible. She had no idea what she'd say to Hazel under even ideal circumstances, let alone in her present diminished state, and hoping to... Hoping... Well... Hoping to what? Grizz seemed convinced the girl was using some kind of spell or incantation to enact vengeance on Tusk and his goons. Such things were technically possible, but the kind of power it would take to perform something like that was considerable and required many, many years of diligent training to pull off. The police already knew of the few people in the city who were capable, and none of them could be found to have any dealings with Hazel. She was not rich enough to afford such a service anyway. So what alternatives did that leave? Pixie rubbed her eyes, was buffeted by another blast of winter wind. She squirmed inside her leather jacket. This favor wasn't going to do itself. Pneumonia wasn't on her list of preferred ways to die, and frostbite was an extra problem she didn't need right now. Maybe Hazel had something stronger to drink than coconut water. Here the dog... Pixie thought. What the hell? I'm unemployed, aren't I? She rose and crossed the street, hand raised to knock, when a scream tore the night apart. The flimsy door gave easily. Inside, Pixie found Hazel seated in her wheelchair beside a low wooden table in the cramped living room. She was wrapping a towel around her hand, the cloth already saturated with dark blood. On the table, Pixie's expert eyes quickly located a kitchen knife, also stained with blood, and a single, freshly severed finger, the nail painted purple, in a spreading pool of crimson on the rough wood. Hazel, what the hell are you doing to yourself? A ghastly smile spread across the seated woman's sweaty face. I'd stand back if I were you, detective. It's too late to do anything but get yourself hurt. I've been hurt before. Pixie moved further into the room, one hand gripping the switchblade in her jacket pocket. Wanna fill me in on what your hand did to deserve that? In the corner, a boxy old turntable spun a scratchy record. The voice escaping from the speakers was a wailing cry of sorrow and desperation. It sang a very old song about faith and love and loss. Thirteen red candles were assembled around the table, the flame of each flickering in the otherwise uniform gloom of the place. The shadow seemed to grow thicker, 
even as Pixie watched. I could have gotten used to the chair, Hazel said. People live with worse all the time. I could have even gotten used to Leroy being dead. People die every day. Growing up in this neighborhood, he wasn't the first person I knew to get shot. But what I couldn't live with, what I couldn't stand for one more second, was knowing the ones that didn't were still out there living so damn large. Pixie pulled her blade and flicked it open as a low growl shook the room and rattled the window glass. It seemed to come from every direction at once in the darkness beyond the candles. We buried him down south where he grew up, Hazel said. Little Hilltop Cemetery close to his mama's place. We visited once a few years ago. There's a crossroad nearby. Just a lonely intersection. The kind of spot you'd never really notice. But Leroy said it was special. A place where people could find things if they wanted them bad enough. If they were willing to trade. It's not easy to get to in this chair, I'll tell you that. But I managed. I went back after the funeral and brought along a few special things. And I waited. Sure enough, sometime around midnight, I met a new friend, a guitar player with black eyes and sharp teeth. We jammed for a while and made ourselves a deal. The room was filled with the hot, panting breath of a massive creature, but still Pixie could see nothing in the darkness. She felt the heat pouring off it, though and smelled the reek of fetid breath. And something else. Something like sulfur. Stay out of the way, detective, and you'll be all right. Hazel reached with her good hand for the finger on the table. He is not here for you. She spared the digit barely a glance as she raised it high and glared into the darkness. Tyson Tusk, she hissed. Go fetch him. Hazel tossed her finger into the shadows, and the sharp sound of snapping jaws made Pixie flinch. She still saw nothing in the room. The finger had appeared to simply vanish midair, and suddenly, the presence was gone. The darkness seemed to dim and firelight leaked back into the corners of the room. The stench was gone too. What did you do? Pixie asked, her voice small in the resounding silence. Just made another payment. Hazel cradled her wounded hand and closed her eyes with an exhausted sigh. The latest advance. He'll be back to collect in full soon enough. It ends tonight. The music went on, ghostly and timeless, and from somewhere in the night outside came a blood-curdling howl. My God, 
Pixie whispered. Hazel began to laugh. Not exactly. Outside the nightclub, Grizz and Kit huddled beneath the fire escape as the sky let loose a faint dusting of snow. The brown bear shouted into his phone, demanding backup. Officers stationed outside the club to watch Tusk and his men. Officers at Hazel's place. The response of the duty officer was less than enthusiastic. I got your probable cause right here, Grizz growled. Get off your ass now, or you'll probably cause me to come down there and toss you around. Kit, meanwhile, had detained Slade on his way out the back door. At this hour, she said, you expect me to believe you're heading where? A midnight manicure? Grizz ended the call and came to loom over them with a scowl that discouraged any cuteness. Why don't you stick around, he said. It's a bad night to be out and about. Look, detectives, I'm leaving. Slade drew up the furred collar of his designer coat and shook stray snowflakes from his mane. You don't have to worry about me doing the girl anyway. I haven't personally killed anybody in a very long time. As you sat upstairs, rank has its privileges, right? The girl's a goner, but it's got nothing to do with me. I wasn't there when she and her grungy boyfriend got caught in the crossfire, and it wasn't my order that started the shooting. Not my circus, not my monkeys, you know. Still, Grizz came closer and laid an enormous paw on the lion's back. I'd feel so much better if you hung around. Consider yourself the guy on the tightrope. Step carefully, Slade. The lion shook him off. This coat costs more than your house. You have no reason to hold me here, and you know it. Besides, if this thing tonight ends the way I expect it will, I'm in line for a promotion. You might want to remember that when speaking to me. Tusk had his time, but he's a relic. It's a new day in the world of crime, detective. All that strong arm, run and gun, hail of bullets crap is passe now. On your side too, I think. Come on. Let's evolve together. Kit snorted. If you're the future Slade, I'm heading back into the ocean. You just might be, Slade winked. Can you swim, little lady? How are you at backstroking through wet cement? Kit's foot moved fast, hooking Slade behind his knee and sending him to the filthy sidewalk in a tumbling heap. He came up snarling. Claws bared, expensive coats smeared with street filth and his mane must. Easy, Slade, said Grizz. Ground's awfully slippery out here. I'd hate to see you fall again. Maybe uh, even harder. Slade was dusting and smoothing his coat. I'm going to remember what just happened here, he whispered, turning and striding quickly toward a waiting town car, idling nearby. What now, Gris? Kit took a set of keys from her jacket. We just have the one car. You should go and warn Pixie and stick with her in case anyone shows up for the girl. I'll stay and watch Tusk and call you if anybody else leaves. A chorus of screaming broke out inside the club and suddenly revelers were rushing into the street in a sprinting, shoving, frantic throng. Steam rose from their warm, exerted bodies in the cold night. Grizz looked down at his phone. Lighted now, 
and vibrating in his palm. It's Pixie, he said quietly. In the penthouse above, a burst of automatic gunfire exploded, followed by the unmistakable trumpeting of a very large elephant. Grizz brought the phone to his ear. Let me guess, things didn't go exactly according to plan on your end. Am I right? When it happened, it happened fast, and later, try as she might, Pixie could not explain what she'd seen. Hazel was dead, and who was to blame? The coroner had looked perplexed and more than a little annoyed when she jabbed a finger at his blank report, at the space wherein was recorded the deceased cause of death, and suggested he write suicide. It had almost looked like a thick, black blanket was pulled over Hazel, like a magician's trick. And from inside the shadows had come a painful shriek, cut short by a ferocious growl, and then chomping, gnashing teeth, and ripping flesh, and crunching bone. At last, when the light flooded back in and the darkness disappeared, there was little left of the woman, Pixie, had come to protect. When exactly did she supposedly kill herself, Detective? About a year ago, Pixie said, eyeing what remained of the young musician. And these? The coroner gestured to a trail of large paw prints in the sticky pool of Hazel's blood. How do you explain that? Pixie shoved her hands into the pockets of her jeans and walked toward the door. I don't, she said. I'm not even on the clock right now. There was even less of Tusk than there was of Hazel. By the time Grizz and Kit made their way to the penthouse, it was over, and the savaged corpse of the criminal kingpin was as cooperative as his living self had been. Security cameras had malfunctioned around the building, and none of the fleeing clubgoers, the ones police managed to detain in question, actually saw anything. There was only some kind of giant shadow, they said. Screams. And the howling. There was that too. Morning, and the world looked rougher than usual in the harsh light of another cold, clear day. On the steps outside of downtown police headquarters, Pixie paused, hair tousled by the chill wind. It just doesn't make sense, Grizz. The bear shrugged. Paws searching his pockets for a cigar. Since when has anything the bosses do ever made sense? He found the pack of gum again and frowned, disappointed anew with each rediscovery of his less than appealing alternative vice. Pixie held her badge and duty pistol, both returned moments ago by the chief at a hastily called meeting in his office. They were heavy in her hands. Guess some important phones were ringing this morning. Gris said, sniffing the gum with a look of distaste. I'm just glad to have you back. <laughs> Me too. Detective Kit Laughlin approached with a smile. She wore a long tan coat and heeled boots that made her seem even taller than she was. Though I'll admit that Gris was starting to grow on me. Like a fungus, Pixie said. Thanks for having my back, Kit. Gris returned the gum to his pocket. What will you do now? There's a permanent spot open in narcotics. I know a few guys over there already, so it could be a good fit. 
I really liked working with you, though. And you too. I'm taking Pixie to the wishing well for a little celebration. My treat. You want to come? Pixie and Grizz exchanged an indecipherable look. Kit said, You two really do belong together. But I've got transfer paperwork to finish. Maybe I'll meet you later? They watched her leave, and Pixie said, Did you ever think we might be the best and worst thing to ever happen to each other? Grizz put an enormous hand on his diminutive partner's slim shoulder. You're not even close to being the best thing that ever happened to me, he said. Not even close. Oh, fuck you, Pixie laughed, shoving him away. Did you get those tests back from the dock yet? You got a real knack for curing the moment, partner. The pop and hiss of a lighted match and the faint scents of smoke and autumn leaves came drifting to them from where Officer Nick Jersey stood with a cigarette, leaning against the nearby wall. Give me a sec, Grizz. Pixie walked to him, ignoring the bear's disapproving growl. I guess you heard? Jersey nodded, smoke curling around his amber eyes. Grizz and I are going to celebrate, but I'll be home early. I'm sorry I wasn't feeling well when you came over last time. Maybe, if you're not doing anything tonight, I could make it up to you. Hmm, are you feeling better now? Pixie's hand closed around the badge tucked inside her pocket. It was important to her, more important than she'd even realized. But would it be enough, she wondered, to keep her from looking for more? She remembered how good it had felt to fight the orcs. She thought of Hazel and the bad habit that grief can become. It was true, people live with worse all the time. She tasted the ghostly tang of long-gone blood and tightened her grip on the badge. She felt something. Not quite like flying, but something. Yeah, she said finally. I'm feeling better. Good. The intensity of Jersey's stare did not waver. But I have to visit somebody tonight. An old man I know. He's not doing too well. Is he sick? At last, Jersey smiled. Let's just say he's uh, running out of time. Oh, I'm sorry. Me too. Some other night, I guess. Pixie nodded and hurried to catch up with Grizz, who had already wandered away. Be careful out there, detective, Jersey called. Nobody wins every fight. On the sidewalk, Grizz and Pixie were yet again waylaid. Congratulations, Detective Emberlight, Slade waved from the open backseat window of his idling town car. Matters of department personnel and duty assignments are confidential, Grizz said. What do you know about it? A simple thanks would be nice, Pixie said. Are you implying you had something to do with my reinstatement? Just thought I'd show you how good life can be now that the right guy is in charge around here. Slade smoothed back his mane. Your bosses get it. The smart ones, anyway. And you will, too. In time. I'm looking forward to working with you both. Hey, Slade. Pixie raised her arm, 
thumb and forefinger extended in the shape of a gun. Catch you later. The lion's unsmiling face disappeared behind the reflective sheen of the slowly raised window. That's more like it, Pixie sighed. These criminals were getting a little uppity in my absence. Ugh, I need a hibernation, Gris sighed. But I'll settle for a drink. Come on, let's get out of here. Lead on, Pixie said, eyeing the departing gangster's car. Nobody wins every fight, she thought. But damn, if we didn't win this one. And it's important to mark the good times when they come around, rare as they've been lately, and given what was undoubtedly lying in wait ahead. The new crime king apparently had his claws in the brass already, and that was troubling. The way Grizz ducked the question about his test results was nagging her too. Pixie's wingless back ached as she reminded herself that even now, in a locked room somewhere underground, a little blonde beast with a pretty face and empty emerald eyes was plotting a terrible future, preparing to loose upon the world a horror long thought impossible. Pixie slid her hand into Gris's paw. I feel a mighty thirst coming on. You've been listening to Beast Love Blues, part four of the storybook gothic series by Luciano Morano. Luciano Morano is a Seattle-based photojournalist, reporter, and author. Morano made his debut as a fiction writer in the extreme horror anthology, DOA 3, alongside such genre icons as Jack Ketchum, Edward Lee, and Bentley Little, just to name a few. He was later published in 2018's The Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Volume 3. Morano has covered news events throughout the Seattle area and Kitsap County, and his award-winning reporting, both written and photographic, has appeared in numerous national and regional publications. Morano grew up in East Brady, Pennsylvania, and moved to Pensacola, Florida after high school where he joined the Navy as a mass communications specialist. His time in the service included tours of duty in Hawaii and Everett, Washington, including one Western Pacific deployment aboard the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln, where he served as photo editor and contributing reporter for the ship's newspaper. Wow, ships have newspapers. I did not know that. After opting out of re-enlistment, Murano earned a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in commercial photography at the Art Institute of Seattle. He likes movies, especially horror and documentary films, jogging, craft beer, oldies music, reading, and traveling to new places. If he could have any superpower, he would choose Wolverine-style regenerative abilities, and also the ability to grow Wolverine-style sideburns. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, Please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, 
Available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. Thanks so much for your time and for giving our sponsors a try today. When you support our sponsors, you support this show, and that also means a lot to me. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bet you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill, unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more, and haven't already, 
Be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams.